When Governor Kate Brown leaves at the end of the year, conversations about her legacy will likely focus on the pandemic and the state's response to it. But there's another story that hasn't received as much attention. Brown's record-setting pace of commutations or pardons to incarcerated people. While it is not a replacement for comprehensive criminal justice reform, the power of clemency can be used to address systemic failures while we work to make lasting change. But not everyone is pleased. I'm Andrew Thien, and this is Beat Check with the Oregonian. Before we start, a quick thank you to our sponsor, Pacific Source Health Plans, for supporting the show. Up next, Noelle Crombie, criminal justice reporter for the Oregonian and Oregon Live. We talked about why the governor has turned so aggressively to commutations and pardons, how she makes her decisions, and what victims' families think about the issue. Here's our conversation. Noelle Crombie, welcome back. Thank you. So, Noelle, why did you want to take a a deeper look at Governor Kate Brown's criminal justice record as she prepares to leave office? I've covered criminal justice in Oregon for many years, and I wanted to sit down with the governor to discuss what she saw as her accomplishments in in the area of criminal justice, particularly when it comes to you know some of the reforms we're seeing play play out around the country um, to address racial disparities in um, the legal system, and so I. Um, reached out to her office and and we ended up having a conversation last week about uh, her thoughts on um on criminal justice and and also her actions on clemency which really came into to view last year. Yeah, a lot of uh Oregonians might have a sense of, you know, presidential um pardons, right? Is it is something that we frequently have towards the end of a, a president's term, but they might not be as aware that governors have powers in this realm as well. Can you talk about just what governors legally can do when you talk about clemency? What does that mean and what kind of powers do they have? Yeah, clemency is a broad term that covers um, commutations, which means a, a reduction in a person's sentence. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it also uh, means pardons, which is an act of forgiveness. Um, and in Oregon, uh, a pardon means that um, your record is then sealed. Uh, in Oregon, the governor has you know, really broad clemency powers. Those are um, part of the Oregon Constitution. Mm -hmm. She can grant clemency for any crime but treason. Uh, Clemency powers differ from state to state, but here in Oregon and in other states, uh, the governor has an extraordinary amount of authority to use her power to grant mercy to criminal defendants. Through your reporting, Noelle, uh, how active has Governor Brown been? Well, she started off pr- pretty uh, cool uh, to the to the idea of of clemency um, and continued really a pattern that had been established by um, her predecessors, uh, uh, Governors John Kitzhaber and uh, Ted Kulongoski. Uh, mm-hmm. Governor Kitzhaber issued uh, very few, granted very few uh, uh, clemency um, petitions. Governor Kulongoski was um, was somewhat uh, busier, and he granted a 73 over the course of his administration. And Brown sort of continued along that, giving uh, you know a few each year for the first five years, really, of her administration. Um, 
a couple of things happened uh, in 2020. Of course, we saw the pandemic, um, which took a toll on Oregon's prisons. And also, uh, criminal justice reform advocates uh, were really pressing governors to use this authority, not just in Oregon, but nationally, to address uh, systemic problems in the criminal justice system around um, racial and ethnic disparities, uh, the treatment of juveniles, um, the incarceration of the very old, of the very ill, terminally ill, encouraging governors to do more with this extraordinary power that they have. Uh, And in Oregon, uh, this idea uh, was promoted uh, by Eliza Kaplan, who is an influential law professor at Lewis and Clark College Law School. She wrote a a law paper that year, a legal paper that year, Mm -hmm. encouraging Governor Brown to do more with her clemency power. So that year, um, things really picked up uh, around clemency. Uh, The governor began granting um, uh, petitions uh, for clemency, particularly for juveniles who are about to age out of the juvenile system and then be transferred to um, the adult prison system to finish out their sentences. Um, and, and also, of course, for the pandemic, uh, pandemic releases or commutations make up the, uh, the lion's share of her uh, clemency. I know you're still kind of tallying exactly the the total number of of uh, uh, commutations and pardons, but what wh- what is the figure now? You said it was a few dozen through the first five years. Where do we stand today? Right now, we're at, we're um, more than eleven hundred commutations and about sixty pardons. This might be a great time to listen to the governor in her own words. You um, asked the governor kind of what she looks for, specifically when she's commuting sentences um, for juvenile offenders or people who are convicted of crimes as juveniles. Here's the governor. In terms of the youth, I expect uh, that they show uh, responsibility for their actions, that they have been held accountable, and that they have shown a unique or an extraordinary capacity for growth and change. I am also looking, frankly, for uh, young people to demonstrate that they have a way to give back, uh, to provide uh contributions to their communities, to society as a whole. Now, did the governor give any uh, examples, Noel, of, of uh, uh, incarcerated people who, who f- have met all those checkpoints? Yes, she did. She um, she cited the example of, of a, a young man um, whose case she reviewed, um, and his name is Anthony Pickens. Um, in 1997, uh, Anthony Pickens killed Chad Render, who was then a, a former star wrestler at uh, what was then called Madison High School, and he went on to Portland State. He mm-hmm. wanted to be an architect, um, and Mr. Pickens shot uh, Mr. Render in the chest during an attempted robbery in Northeast Portland. You know, at that time, Anthony Pickens was 15. He was sentenced to life with a minimum of 29 years. And, um, you know, I actually have have, uh, talked with Anthony Pickens at some length about uh, his experience um, and his life, both in prison, before prison. And, and, uh, you know, he said, 
Prison was a very difficult adjustment for him. Uh, he spent his entire period of incarceration in the adult system. That's how it worked at that time. Right. Uh, he ended up spending, at some point in his early 20s, uh, an extended period of time in solitary confinement. And it was during that uh, period of isolation that he said he began to consider you know, his life, his decisions, um, the impact he'd had on Chad Render's family. When he emerged from solitary confinement, right. he was determined to um, change his life, and uh, you know he he says that he did that. Uh, he said he couldn't replace what he had taken from the Render family, and he thought, you know, what is the best way to make amends for that? The best way to make amends is to change. Um, and he went on to live in prison with a record that was free of you know, disciplinary problems. He got involved in a lot of programs and classes and uh, began to turn his life around. He applied for clemency. Um, his uh, petition was supported by Multnomah County District Attorney Mike Schmidt, who described uh, Anthony Pickens' uh, transformation in prison as transcendent. Um, and and, and his, his application for clemency was supported by Mr. Render's family, mm -hmm. uh, who also noted the changes that he had made in prison and said basically he had served his time um, and they did not oppose his release. And the governor granted his release and, and he uh, walked out of prison last October. Um, he had been serving time at the Oregon State Penitentiary. He had been there for 24 years. He's 39 now and living in the Portland area. Now, that sounds like really kind of a textbook case of of a individual who who has changed right it, it certainly seems that way yeah um and the testimony of all of his um you know the volunteers and those who knew him in prison uh you know they certainly felt that uh anthony was deserving of freedom at this point now let's listen to the governor again um you posed a question to the governor of whether she is hands-on talking to victims uh, and their families. So, Governor, have you spoken directly with any of the victims of the people whose sentences you've commuted before you've made your decision? Uh, I have not spoken individually with individuals. I have read uh, numerous letters and received extensive input from the district attorney's office. A common theme emerged in my interviews with the family members of victims, and that is why you made the decisions you made. They learned about your decision either from a victim's advocate, a story in the Oregonian. In one case, a mother learned that her daughter's killer sentence had been commuted from the defendant's lawyer. These are parents and grown children of murder victims that I've spoken with, and they say they have little insight into your thinking. What do you say to them? Well, I, I, as I said, I, I know this is incredibly difficult and traumatic uh, for victims. And of course, their family members. Our intention is always to involve the victims. And that's why we work closely with the district attorney's office. So, Noelle, not every case is like the Anthony Pickens case, right? And not every um, victim's family finds that answer um, or the governor's ultimate decision. To be a good one, right? Yeah, I think um, you know every victim. Um, you know, victims are not all all alike, and they respond to these um, decisions in their own way. Uh, I reported pretty deeply on one particular case out of Benton County um, involving a juvenile offender who uh, killed two people, 
and um, he also submitted a petition for clemency um, and the family uh, the, of the, the families of these two young people, um, Bridget Camber and Ian Dahl, Ian Dahl uh, were you know opposed Sterling Cuneo's uh, bid for release, um, and as did the the district attorney in uh, Benton County, mm-hmm. who said that. You know, Cuneo, Mr. Cuneo is not deserving of mercy. Um, and in in his um, in the states in the DA's um, correspondence with the governor, they included really anguished messages from the families of Mr. Cuneo's victims. Uh, you know, his release has really compounded their their grief. And you know, that's something that I discussed and asked. Uh, Sterling Cuneo about during my interviews with him, and um, and he acknowledged that um, his freedom has, you know, he's as he put it, is you know breaking the heart of um, of his victims' loved ones, and that was uh, something he would always have with him. He said he would never be able to balance out what he had done, um, but he said he he intended to live a life in which he would always try to make amends. You mentioned earlier in our interview, um, the uh, Lewis and Clark professor, uh, Eliza Kaplan, uh, she has a connection to Mr. Cuneo as well. Um, could you describe their connection and then just her, um, you know, her influence in Oregon and in, in helping put this issue on the governor's radar because the governor cited her uh, in in the interview as a as a person that she you know, reads and, and thinks about in, in terms of how they view this issue. Yeah, the governor uh, cited uh, Eliza Kaplan as uh, an influence on her thinking um, about Oregon's criminal justice system. Um, Eliza Kaplan is a professor uh, at the Lewis and Clark Law School. She's previously a national leader in the innocence movement. She came to Portland in 2011, and she's had... Um, you know, she's had a lot of impact on some pretty significant uh, policies within the criminal justice system. She uh, successfully lobbied to restrict which cl- crimes are eligible for the death penalty. Uh, she pressed for a law that uh, creates a legal path for defendants to revisit their convictions and sentences, even after their cases are closed. Mm-hmm. Uh, she um, uh, was instrumental in, in um, passing, helping pass a, a law that or advocating for the passage of a law that um, made sure that people who received pardons had those criminal records sealed. Um, and as you say, uh, she uh, has represented um, a number of the the clients, uh, or a number of her clients have gone on to to get uh, to have their clemency applications approved by the governor. In fact, you know her clinic, her clemency clinic at Lewis and Clark, has served as a pipeline of sorts, really, for uh, for for clemency appeals to Brown. Um, and the numbers really sort of spell that out. She um, has represented, or her clinic, I should say, has represented seventy eight defendants who petitioned for either a pardon or commutation. Uh, forty six of them have been granted. Another seventeen are pending. Um, and the rest uh, have been rejected. Uh, I should say that the governor's office did note that um, you know most clemency applications last year were rejected. That the governor only approved a small percentage of all uh, petitions that they received. And uh, Mr. Cunio works at Kaplan's Clemency Clinic. Is that correct? That's right. Uh, he uh, is her client and now uh, works at at her clemency clinic. 
Does she have a, a divergent view of, of um, you know, what she looks for in terms of uh, picking up cases to pursue? Or is it kind of, you know, what we talked about earlier with these two cases in terms of some level of transformation um, behind bars? I mean, what is, do we know what uh, Eliza Kaplan looks for in, in a client? I think that from looking at the successful uh, petitions um, that she's had that have come through her clinic, you know, I think that uh, women uh, who are uh, incarcerated as well as juvenile offenders, those are two areas that Professor Kaplan's clemency clinic has kind of focused on and 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 looking in particular for um, what they think or what they view as signs of of, of transformation. Uh, thinking that that um, that those qualities would appeal to the governor potentially. Yeah, I'm glad you brought up women because we haven't talked about um, women so far. Um, wh- why is that a focus, um, and has that been a focus of the governor as well? So what, what I what I can say about that is that among those who uh, receive commutations. Um, in uh, a period that began in Mar- early March and ended in the middle of last year, um, two people were convicted of manslaughter, nine were serving life sentences for murder or aggravated murder, and five of those were women. Hmm. Let's take a quick break, then we'll come back and talk more with Noelle Crombie, a criminal justice reporter for the Oregonian in Oregon Life. So we've talked about a, a couple of specific cases, but there was another um, another individual you re- reported on who um, who uh, his name is James Anderson. I'm wondering what can you tell us about about his uh, situation, and do we know why the governor acted on on his behalf? Well, that case uh, falls under you know the governor in in that case did not uh, grant it did not review his case in particular. For, for clemency. Um, he falls into these, this broad, um, group of juveniles that the governor late last year, um, decided to grant, uh, clemency to. She granted clemency to about 72 uh, people who were convicted of crimes as juveniles, mm-hmm. uh, as a group, those individuals will go to um, the parole board for what's called a juvenile release hearing. And it'll be up to the parole board to determine whether or not people like Mr. Anderson and others who are in that group will be eligible ultimately for parole. Um, there's another group of juveniles uh, that juvenile offenders that the governor herself will uh, review on a case by case basis. And, and those uh, number about what, 140. The breakdown here is based on, you know, their length of sentence um, and, and where they fall uh, in, in the sentencing. Uh, but his fate will not be in the governor's hands. Uh, she just made him eligible uh, for to pursue the parole process. And uh, it, it, according to the victim's family, uh, he is set for a hearing uh, next month. And has he shown, from what we're aware of, any, any of the same level of uh, seeming changes behind behind bars that, that the other people we talked about? I haven't reported on his case and, and anything about him. Um, I, I've spoken at some length with the um, his victim's mother and her aunt and uh, the aunt of the victim. Mm-hmm. Um, the hearing 
where where he will uh, appear next month is not going to be sort of a typical parole hearing. These hearings are going to be focused on, you know, sort of uh, juveniles in particular. The board, the, the parole board is going to be looking at um, whether or not the person's been rehabilitated. That's sort of the focus of their deliberations. But the rules also say they can consider, you know, the premeditation or as they put it, deviancy of the crime. Um, in this case, this is a, a, a really uh, a horrifying a crime. It took place in 1996. Uh, Mr. Anderson, who was then 17, drove his victim, Mariah Pelker Ingram, who was a former girlfriend, to a wooded area of Woodburn, where he had already dug a grave. He stabbed her and beat her with a shovel. She was not found for a month. Um, and the family, um, Mariah's family, is um, you know, it strongly opposes uh, Anderson's release. And she was pregnant at the time, correct? That's right. Um, you mentioned earlier that there is a, a kind of a, a separate caseload that the governor is more um, actively involved in. And you asked her about that. So let's hear the governor one more time. So uh, in short, I will be the final decider of that group. Uh, but I have uh, a, a group of folks, uh, uh, primarily lawyers, who will be uh, reviewing cases as well. Um, they will be done on a case-by-case basis. Uh, we receive input from the Department of Corrections, um, from law enforcement, from di- district attorneys, and from uh, the victims themselves. I will say that I am well aware that this is incredibly difficult. So did the governor give any sort of insight into how she views and ultimately makes those final decisions on on uh, the, the specific group of juveniles we were talking about? Yeah, I, I think she's looking for these um, signs of of transformation, as, as she put it, you know, signs that that um, someone has you know, changed uh, and is um, capable of making a contribution to society. Um, I followed up with her staff about um, about this process, and their expectation is that. Um, that only a small percentage of this group ultimately will will see their um, clemency uh, bid approved by the governor. So when we take a step back, Noel, and we look at it, all of this, I mean, what do you think about you know just this activity we've seen from the governor, and and why 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 should people care about this? Yeah, I think that um, a lot of this is is context that, you know, the governor's efforts are playing out amid uh, a national discussion about incarceration, criminal justice reform. Um, These are uh, big discussions that are are coming in response to uh, the legal system's disparate treatment of marginalized communities and what many people see as an overemphasis on punishment versus rehabilitation. You know, the governor herself cited uh, disparities in the judicial, in the, in the criminal justice system as, um, as a, as a reason for her, uh, for the decisions that she's making, that this is a way that the governor uh, can address um, some of the, you know, troubling rates of racial and ethnic disparity in, in Oregon's prisons. Uh, she cited um, in our conversation uh, that the, the, you know, sort of alarming um, disconnect 
in terms of who is in prison. Uh, for instance, nine uh, percent of the or of the prison population in Oregon is black, yet just two point nine percent of the state's population is black. Right. We see a similar disparity play out among um, the Latino population in prison. Uh, and I think the governor said she's you know using clemency as it was intended uh, to correct injustices. Um, and you know I I think. Uh, that's a, a really uh, important thing for people to pay attention to. You mentioned some of the percentages in terms of people being over, overrepresented in the criminal justice system, which you've reported on for years. I mean, what what is the uh, percentage of of people who are, who you know have gained clemency through the governor who are people of color? The governor's office estimates that of the juvenile offenders who are now eligible to pursue parole, as well as those those cases she's going to be reviewing individually, she estimates that about 40% are Black or Latino. So obviously, um, politically, this is this would be a this is not something that we typically see when a when a, an elected official is up for re-election, right? Despite the national discourse that that you laid out there in terms of how we're revisiting some of these practices that that have led to people of color being overrepresented at every single level uh, across our country and in the criminal justice system. This is not something that people really take on if they're up for re-election, right? I mean, it, it seems like a politically challenging thing if you're releasing people who who are murderers, despite the context that we've talked about, right? I mean, that's not something that we typically see if someone is going to go to before the voters again. Yeah, there's political risk uh, involved in these kinds of decisions. And that's, I think, why we don't see a lot of uh, governors uh, doing uh, this. Um, Brown, however, is not eligible to run for governor when her term ends at the end of the year. Um, and, and, and also, but, you know, even, even given the political risks, I mean, we are seeing governors around the country, um, use clemency or at least think about clemency for, for juveniles, uh, for low level offenders, uh, for drug offenders. Um, I, I interviewed the former governor of Maryland, uh, who said that he saw clemency as part of his job and that by making it kind of routine, he took away some of the, um, uh, some of the political risk he saw uh, that, that that could be associated with this because it was just something that he did. Uh, and, and he also made victims a part of the process, um, which I, I think is a, is a criticism here in Oregon that the governor has, at least when it comes to some of these juvenile cases, that the victims don't feel that they have been a part of that process. Um, but I, I, you know, the, the governor in, in Maryland uh, said that you know, he saw clemency as an opportunity for the governor to uh, to right a wrong, to to get, as he said, to get uh, justice done. And that's Larry Hogan. No, that was uh, Governor uh, Robert Ehrlich. Oh, okay. Well, we know that this is obviously an issue that's a, a bipartisan one. That the um, you know at the national level, the uh, the previous president um, you know had some um, activity on this front as well and passed le- legislation and. Um, I guess it's it will be interesting to see what the next uh, Oregon governor does and how active they are in this realm. We'll be paying attention. Well, thanks so much for your impressive reporting on this and for taking time to talk about it. Thanks for having me on. Thanks for listening to Beat Check with the Oregonian. I shared a link to Noel's story in the episode notes. If you like this show, give us a five-star rating and review in Apple Podcasts. It really helps others find the show. Until a friend, help spread the word. 
The best way to support our journalism is through a subscription to Oregon Live. You can do that at OregonLive.com slash pod support. Until next time.